my philosophy has always been is if I can't leave the state of Aboriginal affairs in a better space or place than I found it, then I don't deserve to carry the leadership baton. That's my responsibility and that's my duty to, to our communities. Hello, my name is Matthew Barney-Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I am speaking to Marcus Stewart. Marcus Stewart is a Nira Ilan Bullock man of the Tungarong Nation. He is an advocate, negotiator and strategist with more than 15 years experience in Aboriginal affairs and has had many senior roles in the Victorian State Government. He was elected co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria in 2019 and was CEO at the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. I was absolutely thrilled to get the chance to speak with Marcus on the eve of National Reconciliation Week. Reconciliation is a journey for all Australians. At the heart of this journey are relationships between the broader Australian community and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Marcus embodies this vision with everything he does. He strives towards a more just and equitable nation by championing unity and mutual respect through treaty and truth-telling, in the hope of closing the gap and coming together as a nation. Throughout our conversation, we discuss Marcus's career, advocacy, leadership, the state of Aboriginal affairs, the work to bring treaty to Victoria, closing the gap, reconciliation and recognition, the power of words, politics and past policy, Marcus's personal journey, and much more. If you would like to follow Marcus, you can follow him on Twitter at Marcus B. Stewart. You can also visit firstpeoplesvic.org or ftvoc.com.au for more information on Marcus's work. Please visit reconciliation.org.au to find out what virtual events are happening during National Reconciliation Week, which begins on Wednesday 27th of May. Marcus was kind enough to join me at very late notice, and I could not be more thankful for his insight. So without further delay, I bring you Marcus Stewart. Marcus, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Oh, thanks for having me. Just love you to get started with a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name's Marcus Stewart. I'm a Nira Ilum Balak man of the Tanarong Nation, Central Victoria. And I'm currently uh, the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly, which is tasked on leading the Aboriginal community on its journey towards treaty. I was elected to represent my traditional owner nation, the Tanarong people, Tanarong community, back in around August last year, I think it was. And then in December, I was elected to the the executive of the assembly and then as a co-chair. And I guess as is our custom amongst Aboriginal communities, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, even though we're meeting virtually, we're still on Aboriginal land and I'm currently on Wurrung, Wurundjeri land. And so I just want to acknowledge them and their elders past and present. So you mentioned the First Peoples Assembly. So what does that actually entail? Yeah, so it's the first of its kind in Victoria as far as a, a representative democracy. We were stood up as far as a formal entity of 31 traditional owners from across Victoria, and uh, we're tasked with leading the journey towards treaty. We've got to develop a treaty negotiation framework, a treaty authority, and a self-determination fund within our um, elected term. Yeah, and I know that it's Reconciliation Week coming up. So I would love to know a little bit about what treaty means and what the difference between something like treaty is versus recognition versus reconciliation. What, what do these different terms mean? And where does the First People's Assembly sit in actually, I guess, coming up with a solution in these areas? Well, there's a number of form of different levels of 
recognition throughout the country and throughout the state of Victoria. And I guess treaty, what we're looking for, it's not just the legal agreement that is struck between, you know, Aboriginal people, traditional owners in Victoria and, and Victorians, but it's the truest form of reconciliation because it's a joint agreement between, you know, our Victorian population and our traditional owner population in Victoria. So as you said, reconciliations next week. First time I'll, I'll ever be celebrating it uh, virtually, so it's going to be interesting. But I think what we see in Native Title and even in the Aboriginal Heritage Act in Victoria, the Traditional Owner Settlement Act in Victoria, recognition is based on a bag of rights that is you negotiate from government as a traditional owner group. And we see treaty as, you know, also a legally binding agreement, but a political movement to look at how we reshape our relationship moving forward as a nation. So we've always, and I've often said that Aboriginal culture, not only being the oldest living culture in the world, it's as much a part of my history being an Aboriginal man as it is yours living on Aboriginal land. So how do we move forward together as a reconciled nation, as a healed nation, being able to tell our truths of what has happened and embrace, you know, the oldest living culture in the world. For sure. And and that was brought about in 2016 originally, wasn't it, through Daniel Andrews' government? Is that right? Yeah, so the Andrews government, um, so what had, what had actually happened to my rec- uh, recollection, it was uh, February 2016 and there was a community meeting convened. There was a lot of dialogue happening around the recognised campaign and constitutional recognition. And it come to Victoria and the Aboriginal community at that meeting said, no, we want treaty. And to the minister at the time, uh, Natalie Hutchins, who was the minister for Aboriginal affairs, basically said, if treaty's what you want, well, I'm going into bat for it in the cabinet. And the Andrews Labor government backed it in. And here we are four, four years later with a democratically elected body that represents um, Aboriginal communities across Victoria on treaty, starting to map out the key architecture and agree on the key architecture that's going to form treaty making in Victoria. And that treaty making country. Yeah, that, that's what I, so that treaty making in Victoria will be I guess the stepping stone for the rest of the nation to to follow suit depending on on how that goes is that correct? We're we're leading the way. We've seen other states now come out backing in treaty processes. We've seen states who had a treaty process and conservative governments come in and whitewash that process and it's gone, like South Australia is the most recent example, which is really interesting because we look at British Columbia in Canada, their treaty-making process was set up in the first treaties negotiated with the conservative government because they saw this process as a process of reconciliation. The final agreement was a treaty. We've seen in British Columbia recent economic reporting saying that the the benefit to the British Columbian people, not only their First Nations people, is an increase of six to seven billion into their economy. That's the opportunity we have in Victoria. So everything we're seeing around the world tells us that not only traditional owners in Victoria will benefit from treaty making, Victorians will benefit from treaty making. So what do you think it is that makes I guess certain governments and certain people so afraid of treaty and and so afraid of moving forward here is it purely a 
race or traditional thing or is there something that underlying in terms of power, what what do you see? And I, I don't want to make you speak about something that you, you don't want to go too far into, but basically we've got a situation where you said it's about healing, it's about bridging divides, and it's about finding a way forward together. Why would this, you know, want to be stopped by certain segments of our society, do you think? I reckon if I had that question, we probably would have had a treaty in place a long time ago. But... Um... It's a great question. I think what we've seen in the Barunga Statement, post the Barunga Statement, post the the march over the Sydney Harbour Bridge where there was calls for, you know, treaty now, the song, treaty, you know, we had a nation singing the words but not knowing what actually the song meant. And I think every time we see a movement within the Aboriginal community, it quickly becomes a political football within our parliament. And so why is that? I think it's too easy to become a political, because we're such a minority, it's too easy for it to become a political football. We saw the Uluru statement in the third chamber commentary was absolutely incorrect of what we were trying to achieve. We've only ever had one ask, and that's equity and an ability to share. And I don't think people really want to, well, I think historically we haven't seen people really want to dive into that and understand what it means. But now we're seeing a whole new dynamic amongst our broader Australian community and Victorian community. We've seen Victorians support reconciliation. We see Victorians support treaty, and we're seeing that across the country now with states and jurisdictions coming out supporting the treaty process. So I think it's just, I think we can do a lot in a truth-telling process. We can do a lot by educating our broader society of what it actually means. Because as I've said, it's as much as my story as it is yours. And that's what we need to embrace to move forward. What I'm what I'm sort of gathering and, and what I think is that there's obviously this gap in in the narrative that's being told between segments of society that are against this and also about what is we, what we want to achieve or what it, the intention is in the long run. So we've had Treaty, the famous song come out in the early 90s and we're now almost 30 years later. So, you know, so many people along the way that would no longer be with us that are that were asking for this, you know, that was already very late in the piece and, and now we're here. If we're looking for constitutional or federal recognition, what is the role at the moment in Victoria that will actually reach there? What is a, a goal that you see that you want to achieve in the next year to show that we're on the right track and to actually see this in fruition? What happened in British Columbia that actually allowed Indigenous people in British Columbia actually feel like they were recognised and part of society in a way that they were actually a vibrant people that are continuing to flourish over time, but also recognised and really a part of that community that people are like, yeah, we're able to work together here. We're, we're on the one team rather than this minority group that people do play political football with. What What is it that is a goal, one sort of tangible goal that we might be able to see that helps us understand what this process will look like? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a big question. Um, And if I tackle it in sort of chunks, I think uh, you're right what we saw in the Treaty of the Song and we saw the Barunga Statement in the late 80s. You know, this has formed part of our activism as we've marched the streets for many, many, many years. And what we saw in British Columbia is we saw constitutional reform. It's not something we have here federally. 
we saw constitutional reform underpinning First Nations rights over there and activating their rights to treaty making, as I understand it. Now, we don't have that. Now, from a state point of view, we're looking at agreement making with the state. So what we see is the the opportunities in front of us right now is what the legislation sets out as our role and responsibility. That legislation is the advancing the treaty process with Aboriginal Victorians 2018. And our key responsibility is to develop a treaty negotiation framework. So we can see treaty making amongst Aboriginal communities, traditional owner nations. Then it's to set up a treaty authority, which is an independent umpire to keep both parties accountable, parties being government and the other party being traditional owner nations. And the other part of that is the self-determination fund, which we can see our own source of, of money to actually run our affairs and start moving the bureaucracy out of our lives and start taking autonomy and decision-making over key policies that impact our day-to-day lives as Aboriginal communities. Yeah, that idea of removing those barriers that actually allow people to to get on with it, isn't it? That idea of autonomy and self-determination that is quite often missing. It's okay to throw money somewhere, but without that decision-making and that empowerment, it's it's not overly worth it in the end. So that's a, a great aim. So you mentioned right off the bat that there were 31 traditional landowners that would gather together. Is that right in the First Peoples Assembly? Is that correct? So how we're structured is there's 11 reserve seat holders, which are traditional owner groups who held cultural heritage rights under the Aboriginal Heritage Act. And then there's regional elected representatives who have been elected within their region. So there's five regions across um, across Victoria. And we went to election, I think it was September last year from memory, and 21 of those seats were elected then and stood up. And then there were um, 11 traditional owner seats or reserved traditional owner seats which um, were activated and we were stood up in December. So how does that work? For, for many people who don't really understand, obviously Australia prior to, I guess, invasion or colonisation or settlement, whatever people like to call it, was a land, a continent with many, many different nations, with many different language groups and beliefs. And obviously it's been collectivised over time into the word Aboriginal or Indigenous, but we know that there are so many different cultures. Can you explain that in general in Australia, but also in a Victorian context? Yeah, there's there's enormous diversity amongst um, Aboriginal nations in Victoria, let alone the country. You know determined by different moieties, by different language groups. If I use the Kulin Nation, for example, we've got the Wadarung, the Tanarung, which is my nation, Jajawarung, uh, Bunarung, and uh, Wurundjeri or Woiwurrung, which were connected through, you know, similar languages. We see, if I speak about Tanarung, for example, my people, we've got rock art on Tanarong country, which people wouldn't associate with Victoria, you know, knowing of rock art, they'll associate that with the Northern Territory, which is currently being dated at 21,000 years plus. So it's, you know, you think about how far that goes back generationally, it's, you know, it's enormous. And our culture in Victoria is present, but we just haven't, along the Eastern Seaboard, it hasn't been as well documented as 
present as what you'd see in the Northern Territory, in the Kimberley, WA. So that's why we see treaty and truth-telling as part of treaty as a key education piece and tool for Victorians for us to move together united. Absolutely. Yeah, and and that idea of being united, you know, there is diversity and there is difference, as you said, with language groups and beliefs and and all sorts of histories, but together as Victorians. And I I know that there is a difference between what treaty might end up looking like. Is Is that right, that there may be a a Victorian treaty or it might be within the traditional landowner groups as well? Right now we're working through some key topics of whether it's an overarching treaty, a statewide treaty, whether it's multiple treaty with traditional owner nations across Victoria or whether it's a hybrid model of both. So that's something where we'll sit and we'll deliberate over, we'll debate and we'll make a decision on to move forward. But that's, some, that's a piece of work that we're trying to work through at the moment as an assembly. It's going to be, I mean, it's tricky. There's a lot of intricacies in how that may all play out. But we're keen to see, you know, treaty making before the end of our term, our elected term, which is four years. Going back to the point you made about the eastern or southeastern Australia and, and the knowledge of people to, to not really recognise that there is a living history that remains today in a city such as Melbourne or in rural Victoria compared to something like northern WA in the Kimberleys or in in, um, northern territory. What is it? I mean, I've read Bruce Pascoe's book, um, Dark Emu, and he goes out to to lay down lots and lots of the, the sites that are still in Victoria and across the eastern seaboard that have been forgotten by the mainstream media in many ways or forgotten as a as a part of our histories as, as Australians, but especially obviously for traditional landowner groups. But there's so, been so much division about that book, especially in the sort of conservative media. So is that the challenge? Is it about realising that where Australia has grown and prospered as a nation for people that are not Aboriginal, is it a touchy subject there is that where maybe that divide starts to lie that the prospering actually occurred on land that was sacred and is sacred to so many people and is that is that where the the step for for certain segments of society is that they don't it's either we don't want to recognize that it was sacred because then we've done something wrong and it feels bad or we don't want to do that because then admitting it means that maybe we need to start changing the way that we live our lives what do you think i don't have the answer i don't have the answer to that but if we look at you know the decision of marbo when there was the whole argument of terra nullius which was completely dismissed where them arguments were present and they were basically abolished then we look at i guess a frustrating thing that i've always observed is when you come out and you advocate for the rights of traditional owners and aboriginal people Uh, across the nation in Victoria, you know, it quite quickly becomes a political football. Now, there's the whole arguments of, you know, over-policing political correctness when you're pushing them barriers. But then when you actually hold someone accountable, they go, that's what, that's the argument they'll throw back at you. But then when, you know, divisive, politically divisive, racial sort of dividing is, is happening amongst them levels of debate, they call it free speech. 
And it's always Aboriginal affairs. It is the political football where that happens. So what we need to do is how do you take the heat out of this discussion? How does it become a, a mature discussion that's about our collective history? Because we know it's present. We look at Budjabim, for example, the World Heritage Listing, ancient, sophisticated science on how the Gunditjmara people farmed eel. And last year was recognised under World Heritage Listing. Amazing, a phenomenal effort for them. It's just, yeah, it's kind of tricky when you try to move forward. It's like two steps forward, sometimes can be three back. But I think we're mature enough now to start having these conversations around treaty, around reconciliation, around truth-telling without it being labelled as being a cultural war. Yeah, and that cultural war label has been bandied about even recently with um, the coronavirus being compared to the invasion of the First Fleet in a way and then the idea of that cultural war occurring. The I think Peter Dutton labelled that the, the case. Do you have any commentary on, on that at all, on the, the recent telling, or is that almost adding fuel to the fire of this cultural war that we're trying to, to move away from? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, I spoke to um, I spoke to Raf on ABC on the drive home about this because you know there's one clear point that I made, and it's that the tweet that um, the deputy chief health officer had made, Annalise, there was nothing untrue about what she has said in her tweet. It's just not a well-known truth amongst our society. And that's the opportunity we have right now to educate our broader society on what our history is, what our collective history is. And I think we can't continue to go down these lines of it being labelled cultural wars or divisive politics. I think we just need to move forward, work together on what our narrative looks like, what treaty-making potentially can be, and how we're all going to be the richer and beneficiaries of this process. What do you envision in, in your mind on a, on a personal level? What do you envision? Do you, when you see the people with the Australian flag and, and the barbecue and stuff on, on the 26th of January, and then you see the marches go on on that day as invasion day, what do you actually see as the way to bring those messages together that there is a pain, there is a history that is built on, on destruction and murder and, and terror that can't be understood unless you're, that's part of your lived experience and, and part of your your ancestry and, and, and generational. And, you know, me as a, I've got an Italian background, but being, you know, born in Australia, have never had anything like that as part of my history to deal with. But how do we then bring that and that pain and then bring it and lift it into a future that is prosperous together with those people that might be now saying, I don't want to change the day that I have a sausage and a beer. I want to continue this. And and you you mentioned the word education earlier, but obviously we want to bring this forward with a, a sense that everyone's united in moving forward or as many people as we can get. What is your personal vision of what that might look like? I've often thought about this because I think it was, it's only become a public holiday since the nineties. So that's my understanding of it. I think um, personally I see as an Australian society, I would love to see myself, my son, my great-grandkids be able to celebrate a day 
with all, you know, your fellow Australians. A day that unites us, not a day that's de- that's currently dividing us with two different narratives. What that looks like, I'm not sure, but I think we've all got a responsibility to actually find that because the key pivotal, I guess, success factor to reconciliation is truth-telling. And I think we need to build that level of understanding amongst our society through education and revisit a day where we can all celebrate. You know, if that's having a barbecue, then so be it. But we need to look at a day that recognises all Australians, including First Nations in this country. What does that truth-telling entail? Do we want to look at, I guess, the the wrongs and the harm that's been put in and the sort of generational exploitation of First Nations people? Are we looking at the personal stories of people? When we talk about truth-telling, what does that process look like? Well, we've seen it in um, South Africa where there were... um, there are actually hearings held to talk about what had actually occurred. There's no prescriptive, I guess, process of how this will work. It's something that we'll have to work on and, and negotiate. But I think the underlying principle is for us to be able to speak our truth, to be able to heal what has actually occurred, to be able to acknowledge the frontier wars that happened on these country in this country and to move forward united as a nation. Because like I'd said earlier, it's part of all our history. It's part of all our story, regardless if our grandparents or parents have just recently migrated to Australia. We all live on Aboriginal land. I'd love to get to know a little bit more about you. Where were you born? Where is your traditional owner group based in Victoria exactly? So we're central Victoria, so we're the northern neighbour of uh, Wurundjeri and the southern neighbour, well, we border on um, Jarjarung, Yorta Yorta, towards going, you know, north, and then we go northeast from there up into the um, the high country. So Mount Buller, Mansfield, Seymour, all the way down to Kilmore. So we've got a big, vast piece of uh, Victoria, which is our traditional boundaries. My family come from Kilmore and Yay, and there's actually a um, a walking track named after my great grandfather uh, in Yay, which I encourage people next time they're up that way to go and and check out. It's called the Franklin Walking Track. But I guess my my story is um, I started my career out as a um, working in foster care uh, with Aboriginal children in out of home care. And then moved into a um, a clinician role where it was based on assessment, diagnosis, treatment of Aboriginal children in the out of home care sector. So, um, in a lot different, uh, working in a different space now, a completely different space, sort of highly political space these days. But um, I guess my early days of career and career was working with Aboriginal young people in the out of home care system, and then spent a bit of time as a cultural advisor in Corrections uh, Victoria, understanding the tertiary end of the system, so to speak, where there's enormous investment, where it was really challenging that time, knowing that where the investment to actually make change had to be with families in the early intervention stages, but yet we continually see an enormous investment in the um, correctional systems and, and programs there to rehabilitate. So what actually led you to being in the the foster care system and what did that look like on the ground? 
What led me to working there is, I mean, I had parents that worked in the welfare system and I'd admired uh, the work and resilience that they'd always played, including my brother at the time as well. And so I knew I wanted to work with Aboriginal kids, but I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. I guess I wasn't fortunate enough to go straight into university out of out of school. I needed to make money. Uh, I needed to earn my keep. And uh, I was fortunate enough to um, to get a uh, a job, a junior job at the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency where they gave me my first chance. And um, I guess I started there and worked my way up from working as an access worker at the time, supporting, you know, supervised visits between Aboriginal families and their children to try and build, I guess, build towards reunification and, and keeping families together, to then becoming a foster carer and case manager, and then working uh, on the on the front line as a um, an advice point for the removal of Aboriginal children to child protection at VACA. So it was called the Lakitchika Access Program at the time, and I guess a key priority I had was, well, one, keeping Aboriginal children safe, but keeping Aboriginal families together. Yeah, and that's uh, the hard one. When, when you say the word removal, you you think maybe the Solon Generation's idea starts to, to hit in your head. So how do you, and you said it there, you know, the idea of keeping families together and, and keeping families unified, but then also the safety of, of children is the most imperative thing. How did you balance that? I mean, it's a tricky one. Um, one thing I've always been strong on is, you know, the ripple effect of the policies and historic policies that have torn Aboriginal families apart. And we just have to look at the stolen generations, for example. We still see the ripple effects of that today. So I've always been a big believer and strong supporter in keeping families together, but keeping kids safe. So one thing that you see really poor investment in is that early intervention stages for that. Because what we know is if you invest in making families stronger, you can keep families together. There's certain circumstances for each. But what my core philosophy was is um, looking at all the key resilience factors for Aboriginal families, which a key one is culture, and for Aboriginal children to keep them connected. But there were some circumstances where, you know, that wasn't always the case. You know, being so early in my career, it quickly teaches you a lot about resilience. I was you know, unlucky enough or unlucky, well, unlucky is probably not the word, but I had um, some kids that that were on my caseload that unfortunately we lost through drug overdoses and, you know, other circumstances. They were teenagers at the time. You know, it was horrific. And, you know, some of the things like that still haunt me today, but um, it's just unfortunate of some of the gaps in our system that these kids couldn't find a safe environment and we couldn't keep them together, keep their family together. But um, I guess that's the challenge and that's, you know, it happens probably too often, not only for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, but Indigenous children in the out-of-home care sector. Yeah, I think society in general is becoming much more individualised, much more separated, and we're seeing that more and more often in general, in general terms, that people that are about culture and about you know, collective story and collective unity as a as a people, all of a sudden, in many cases, are being told to to raise children, you know, in a in a home on their own without support networks and without the ability to maybe heal what has gone on in 
in the the parents' lives in many cases, and that and that's true of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations and and people that find it difficult potentially to have families because it costs a lot of money to access all the services in many cases to to be able to to work and to live a life that you know is thriving without all those supports that traditionally were around until not very long ago where you had lots and lots of people raising you know a village to raise a family that sort of message so as you say the the cultural side of things and then to to come out the other end and see the the pain that actually occurs where we're seeing young people with their lives ahead of them actually end up if they don't lose their lives in many cases they actually end up in the prison system as well so when you when you saw that and you were young, you were you know eighteen, nineteen, early you know late teens, early twenties. Was there a moment that you said, "What can I do, or what do I need to do to make sure that that this starts to change?" Did you ever have like a light bulb moment in that in that regard? I did. Um, one thing I was lucky enough to sort of figure out early was where the change in the system needed to be. Unfortunately, it's not the front end as much as you need the amazing people that work frontline services in them in them circumstances. It's at the political level. That's where the laws are made. That's where the change needs to happen. And then it needs to be driven down through the public service and bureaucracy. So what we do know in order to create change, there has to be system change and system reform because the issues that face, well, that I saw as facing the major issues for Aboriginal children were systemic and they were generational. So is that something that treaty can achieve? Perhaps um, we don't know. But one thing that I learned early on in my career that the change of where it had to happen was political. There had to be good political will. There had to be bipartisan support and there had to be a strong appetite to want to make a difference because what we know is that all sides of government have bipartisan support in closing the gap, but we still have a gap. And I think in 2020, it's completely unacceptable and we need to look at, and we are looking at, and there's some amazing work happening of how we address that. When we think about closing the gap, what are we actually looking at there? We're looking at education outcomes for Aboriginal children. We're looking at life expectancy there is still an enormous difference between life expectancy from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Victoria as opposed to Victorians. There's still over significantly over-representation of Aboriginal children in the child protection system. Health outcomes, that's what we need to see changing. That's what we need to make sure that we're investing in all the right areas and hitting the key milestones and targets to create this change. It's not easy for governments. It's not easy for the public service. It's a significant burden on our communities because our organisations, for what they're funded, outpunch on every level. They overperform, they overdeliver. They're not just stock standard service delivery models. They are more to our community than that. They're hubs of where we can go and socialise, where we find people, where we connect with each other. Obviously not in this environment. There's just so much that needs to sort of occur. We've seen a different approach at a federal level to closing the gap driven by, and a credit to the Prime Minister and and Minister White on this, to do it from a co-design model. And we're hoping that this can now start chipping away at 
reducing this gap because it's not it can't it's not and it can't be accepted as the status quo. We need to do something significantly different to actually achieve what we're after what we're setting out to do, and that is close the gap. So obviously as part of your your role and your career and, and moving into more political roles, closing the gap has been at the forefront. This podcast actually looks at those values and, and looks at the idea of what values underpin everything we do because we can look at a a model to try to improve something as working or not working, but it's about the intention that's behind that. It's about what we want to achieve. So at the end of the day, what do you look at? What are your values that underpin everything that you do there's many channels that you can do those things in. But, you know, if I was to ask you, Marcus, what are the core values that you believe in and that drive you? What would you say that they would be? Uh, without having a, a little chuckle to myself, because I, um, I just sort of reflected back on what my, um, my parents drum, drummed into me at a young age, and that was, you know, three, three key values early days, and one was culture, second was unionism, and the third was the Collingwood Football Club, <laughs> um, and um, all three, if they weren't embedded in, well, you know, what you believed, uh, could have got me disowned at a young age. Um, but quite simple, it's just around equality. I think, yeah, you just have to look at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people and the lack of equality for our First Nations people. But also, you know, I've always been a big believer in social justice and equality, and that's what's driven my whole career to try and chip away and, and try and make a difference where I can. And I guess, you know, fundamentally as a society, we all should, you know, be able to have access to the same opportunities as everyone else. That's what I've always believed, you know, naively or not. Um, that's what I'm set out to achieve. So, I often touch on this, the, the, the gap between optimism and pessimism and, you know, hope and grief and those sort of polar opposites that, can sometimes join together to a, to align us to where we need to go. But where do you stand on that front? You, you sound more optimistic with what you're saying that, you know, chipping it away and that, and that you've got to continue that. But are you optimistic? Do you have hope ahead of you or is there pessimism or, or grief or uncertainty that sneaks in occasionally? I guess there always is uh, grief. Well, I guess the level of uncertainty, you know, but I just reflect on my own experience because, you know, people often categorise me as, um, you know, uh, well-educated, university-educated, you know, speak speaks well and can present an argument. But, you know, little do they know is that I struggled during school. School was really difficult for me. And, you know, rebelling as a teenager, acting out, that sort of thing, i had to basically teach myself to read uh, at the age of 15 because I couldn't, which was a real struggle and I sort of had to grind it out. And so that's the sort of, but what that actually taught me is not only an ability to read, but an ability to work and to apply myself and that, you know, really drove that self-confidence and, and optimism that, you know, if you chip away at anything, you can you can get it done. That's what I've tried to um, to achieve throughout my some would say short career, working the last 17 to 18 years in Aboriginal affairs. But um, I definitely take a glass half full approach. I think you've got to, you know, some of the things that face our people and our communities, you've got to have a glass half full approach because we carry 
this baton of leadership for a short period before we hand it on. My philosophy has always been is if I can't leave the state of Aboriginal affairs in a better space or place than I found it, then I don't deserve to carry the leadership baton. That's my responsibility and that's my duty to, to our communities. Yeah, brilliant. So you worked your way through the, the foster system and out-of-home care system into corrections and then you said that you got into, into politics. But what was the process there? What did you actually start off doing? What was it? Did someone tap you on the shoulder or did you, you know, force your way into the political side of Aboriginal affairs? Uh, so I was working in the out-of-home care sector then as a child therapist for um, I was a qualified family therapist for a little, for about five or six years and then I landed in a CEO role as a um, well I was sort of I was acting in a CEO role at um, Bullet Willem for early learning which was a child and family center had long daycare and that sort of model under the Rudd era uh, back in 2012 from memory acting in a role and had no idea what I was doing so that's where I um I guess I got the crash course of you know 27 being in a, a leadership role quickly learning what not to do and and getting a crash course on what leadership was and what advocacy was understanding that my role was pivoting from activism to advocacy something I didn't realize what it was at the time but that's sort of what kind of shaped me wanting to be involved in politics and wanting to influence through politics in how do you advocate on the best interests of communities that are going to benefit communities? Um, you know, what is the need and uh, what is the demand? So from there, I went into the, um, the correctional system, which I guess it's a punitive environment and that's not a criticism, it's just the reality of it. So learning to develop policy and deliver policy in that environment really hones your niche and your skill on how to navigate such a punitive system. You really you really have to be creative on how to build change and, and create change in there. So as tough of as tough as it was for my time there, it's probably um, them two roles in particular gave me, you know, enormous um, I guess an enormous learning opportunity but experience to you know, how to sort of hone your craft in creating change. So the question, I guess the bigger question is uh, what led me to politics and uh, I've sort of beat around the bush. But um, one thing I learned, and whether it's the right description or not, but, you know, early days as a CEO and then going into the public service, you know, as a CEO to influence change and system change, you're sort of playing around with a chessboard with the pawns and trying to move them around to try and, um, I guess, get some quick wins, or not quick wins, but to get some wins on the board. You go into the public services and opportunities come up uh, for reform and you sometimes get the king or queen on the chessboard in your hand to actually to create change that is going to be impactful on you know Aboriginal communities. And then I quickly learned that, you know, the parliament is where the chessboard is and where the king and queen is, um, you know, regularly played, rightly or wrongly. That's how I best made sense of it in my head and that's where I become politically active from there on in. And, and what did that political activism look like? Was it advocacy and trying to bring change by banging down the door of the politicians or, you know, was it about trying to find a way to actually become part of that 
democracy and a, a decision maker in your own right. Was it, did that happen a little bit later or was it always your intention to, to get to the point where you can lead and, and be a decision maker or was it about being a voice that could really advocate to someone that was making decisions? And I, I know that that's uh, where you're sitting now, but where did it actually begin for you? I guess it began with frustration around how do we create change and how do we actually make change um, that's going to last. And I was, well, I had, you know, times where I was uh, an activist. Um, I wouldn't consider myself an activist compared to some of the, some of our, our mob out there in Victoria who are just brilliant at it. Um, you know, I wouldn't carry their bags as far as my ability to be an activist, but um one thing I was really good at is advocacy and working to chip away at the long-term goals of what we were, we were trying to achieve. And I guess just learning to um, to lobby politicians on, you know, what are key things that you want to see as far as change and trees, I guess, the most recent example of that investment into Aboriginal communities. You know, we've got some brilliant activists in Victoria, but, you know, I saw my role as never being that. I never set out to be a leader, uh, so to speak. And, you know, when uh, it's often described of me, I guess I still get a bit, uh, I still cringe a little bit when people say that. But I guess over time it's just built my ability to advocate, you know, becoming a branchy, also attending, you know, local branch meetings, um, obviously declaring my political the allegiance would be, you know, attending Labor branch meetings and whatnot. I guess that was disclosed when I was talking about the three key things my parents drummed into me, uh, talking about unionism. But um, mm. it was, um, you know, attending and just, you know, learning what the key topics are, learning about how local issues are raised and dealt with and then championed from politicians. Um, I think just being around it and and learning from what's happening around you, seeing how people, you know, present, run, their arguments and and push and lobby to uh, get things done. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to just watch, observe, and had a cousin that was um, a political advisor for a long time. I think the first Aboriginal political advisor in Victoria under the Brax and Brumby governments, and they're still back. They're still actually a political advisor, believe it or not. So, I mean, yeah. So I've been around politics for a long time. Main seeing mainstream politics, obviously living Aboriginal politics. So um, I just saw, you know, how do you merge both worlds, both level of politics to actually create the change that we need. That idea of entering into politics is very scary for many and many people believe that it will actually maybe make them lose some of the the passion or the the level of being able to be a bit more free in their activism when they're not engaged politically or a part of the political system. Once you decided to more align yourself and, and become more a part of the Labor Party in those branch meetings, did you find that limiting to the work that you were already doing or that activism that you're already doing once you got into that more formal environment? Or did it actually empower you to, to realise that, hey, there's an opportunity for me to really push change and push my values across on, on, on the big stage? Um, I never read it that way, to be honest with you. I kind of it was probably going to sound a little bit egotistical, but I just felt that I was going to push the agenda of Aboriginal communities, traditional ownership uh, and rights 
and you know what needs to occur to improve the lives of Aboriginal people. Ultimately, that was the the goal. I was going to push it no matter what. And you know, I've had you know a lot of conversations, a lot of you know dialogue internally with Labor around that, but also amongst coalition governments. Uh, I sit on the um, the National Voice Co-Design Committee that's currently happening at a federal level. So I've worked, you know, I, I kind of worked on both sides. Obviously, my political alignment is with is with Labor, as, you know, many of our community members is uh, or are, and, you know, a lot of them are aligned to the Greens. And we've seen the first ever, ever Aboriginal woman in the Victorian Parliament, Lydia Thorpe, which was fantastic. And now we see, um, you know, her running for the Senate spot federally. So, I mean, we've, um, we're seeing a lot more political or a lot more Aboriginal people politically active amongst the mainstream politics as well, which I think is great because I think that's where it needs to happen. That's where change can occur. But I never sort of looked for opportunities or found a lot of barriers because I kind of just pushed, you know, the agenda that I see necessary to create change and, as I said, improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And as you could imagine, amongst you know, the Labor Party, they're significantly receptive to that to that value and, and trying to create that change. But in saying that, so have a lot of the um, conservative parliamentarians that I've dealt with. Yeah, there seems to be a, a change slightly in, in conservative politics that there is that maybe more social justice side, you know, and, and I think it, it tends to align with environmental policy as well. But there are many people in, I guess, traditionally conservative seats that really do find pushing for social justice issues or issues that, you know, relate to the environment, relate to minor groups, Aboriginal rights, these sort of areas become really important in the conservative political realm in a way that, you know, obviously the, uh, the economic side of things remains the same, but then the agenda actually shifts. And then almost Labor on the opposite end, that as you get more and more people that are you know, fighting for workers' rights, there's also an element of anti-environmentalism in some parts of Australia in the Labor Party and on, on the more Labor right in a way. So the political landscape is changing in that regard. So I find that interesting that there are people on, on the coalition side that are willing and able to actually to push forward in that. Do you see that the change in politics as something that you have to navigate personally and that the First People's Assembly has to do and Aboriginal rights movements in general have to sort of work with the way politics are going? Or is it basically, as you said, this is what we fight for, this is what we're going to do, and everything else that comes in the way is just, uh, you know, something else to navigate, but it's not going to change how we're going to respond to the needs that we see on the ground? I think there's some fundamental values and principles that you've got to apply to driving, you know, change for or political change for Aboriginal communities, regardless of how they go about it. That's what we're all setting out to achieve. Some have different policy policy ways of going about it and, and preferences on how they do that. And we've got to be agile in how we approach that politic as well. Um, so, you know, we're going to be creative at times, but our underlying message and, and values are the same, and that's we're setting out for equity. We're setting out to improve the lives of our people. But, you know, politics is a forever-moving landscape that we, like everyone else, have to have to navigate and, and adapt to. 
the people, you, you're constantly going back to equity and the people. Do you have someone in the back of your mind when you're working through this, when you're in a room and there's a debate going on and, you know, there's talk back and forth? Do you have someone that you envision or, or envisage in your mind that um, that comes to mind to make you realise why you're there, why you're sitting there? I think I become early in my career, you know, after I spoke a bit earlier about some of the, um, you know, the kids that unfortunately, you know, we lost um, through unforeseen circumstances and things that just you weren't able to to change, and it kind of really hardened me to the to the fact. Um, well, it kind of hardened me as a person of how I approach things as well, including my politic, and so. It really, when you're driving and and running your arguments and trying to advocate for change, I mean, I don't have to think too far back of what I've seen, you know, from my times in child protection to to understand why this is necessary and why this needs to happen. So there's not one person that jumps to mind, but I don't have to think too far back to get a reminder of what's completely unacceptable and, you know, can't continue to happen. As an Aboriginal person, Marcus, do you want to recommend something for people that are maybe not as connected to what Aboriginal culture is? Is there some way that you'd direct people that want to learn more but really don't know much to, to go and have a read of, to watch, to, to visit? Is there something that you would suggest and recommend people to do to, to really understand the basis of what Australia is in reality? What is Australia and who are the, the first Australians? What is it that you'd like to, I guess, suggest for, for our listeners? Well, I guess what I'd be keen to recommend is to get involved in the treaty journey because what's key for us moving forward is um, seeking, you know, bipartisan support for treaty and that requires, you know, people having them conversations with their local MPs uh, around Victoria but also looking at um, our website getting a familiar understanding of what the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria is and what it's out to achieve, you know, looking into who your traditional owner groups are and of where you live and, you know, what you know, part of Victoria you live in. But there was also a great campaign that was run, uh, I think, a year or two ago called Deadly Questions, deadly being a word uh, that we use in, in Aboriginal language as being something really cool or, you know, that's great. Uh, we use the word deadly for that where it was an opportunity to go in and ask questions that you might have been unsure about regarding Aboriginal culture or the treaty process. And we had Aboriginal Victorian people and traditional owners answering the question, which was fantastic. And, you know, we're hoping to see a, um, a, next, a new version of that be released this year, uh, which can dive a bit deeper as well. Yeah, that was, um, that was a great campaign. I think it was two years ago. And people can just, you know, Google search deadly questions and have a look at some of the questions that were asked and I'm sure they'll find, you know, very similar questions that they might be thinking with some, with some answers from, um, from Aboriginal people. Yeah, that was a fantastic initiative. I, I uh, as a teacher, actually am the head of humanities at the school I'm at. So we actually would begin the day for that, for Reconciliation Week a couple of years ago with um, accessing the deadly questions and asking questions, uh, students asking questions themselves and having chats in the room with each other about how they originally thought about something and then how it was actually answered and then what interpretation that brought about 
after and we'd discuss that in homeroom every morning for the week and that was a a really great tool and and that whole website and everything attached actually had so much information for for young people to access as well as adults to find out so much more so that is a was a great tool did you have any questions or either from Matt or, or questions that you get asked that you find hard to answer or surprising or, or something that you'd never think that you'd answer from a non-Indigenous person about Aboriginality? I mean, there's always there's always some questions that sort of prick the ears. Um, you know, I used to always get uh, one growing up around me being fair-skinned and having cousins that uh, are really dark. But I guess that's just the... Um, the nature of what colonisation and how colonisation has played out amongst the east coast of, um, of Australia and in Victoria in particular, us wearing the brunt of um, invasion. But um, I've always been a big believer that there's no such thing as a stupid question. I'd rather someone you know, genuine, genuinely ask me a question that they want to know the answer to and feel comfortable enough to ask it and, and I answer it than um, feel that they, you know, they can't ask that question. So. I've never seen. Oh, I've never believed that there's such thing as a um, a stupid question. You get the odd sarcastic one, but um, which is you know you quickly brush off. But um, no, I've always there's always you know um, people who are nervous to ask certain questions, especially when it comes down to skin color. There is there's long been a stereotype of what an Aboriginal person needs to look like, and I guess that's part of the truth telling process as well. That um, you know we all. We all um, we all look different. Uh, we've all had different experiences uh, growing up, but we've all been significantly impacted by past government policies that tore our our culture, tore our communities, and tore our families apart. I've heard a few things in my time, you know, going around of people what people have said about aboriginality or what aboriginality means so first of all to to start off on that question of skin color is that did for for you who is fair skin did you have a aboriginal side of the family and a non-aboriginal side of the family that you grew up with or connected with or was your upbringing completely as part of an aboriginal community and an aboriginal family uh no it's been both so you know i've got um uh, European uh, heritage as well, uh, Scottish and Irish, um, and I've got um, you know I've got Aboriginal family that we're related on both the Irish and our Tunnarong side, which is um, which is quite ironic. And um, so yeah, it's, um, I've connected to both sides of my family. I've always grown up strong in my culture and always had that connection as well through my family. So it was something growing up that. I didn't know any different. It was my norm. And until it started getting questioned uh, and sort of facing them questions hitting, you know, late primary school, early high school, that's when you start to start thinking, okay, I, you know, what's going on here? I know, you know, because they're questions you never face in your community, um, mm. but there were questions you were facing in the schoolyard or even in the classroom. I remember being bluntly arguing with the teacher one day that they were saying that I wasn't Aboriginal because I was too fair-skinned. And, you know, me coming home to my mum at the time, I think I was in grade five and saying, mum, you know, I don't think I'm Aboriginal. You know, the teacher told me I'm not. I'm too fair-skinned. And then wondering why the next morning mum was so keen to take me to school because it wasn't raining. Um, So, you know, instances like that where you learn from. But, um, you know, and that's where I've always been a big believer in how do you you create them narratives so people can understand and learn and be educated on 
you know, what Aboriginal culture is, what Aboriginal history is, um, because not everyone deliberately wants to be ignorant to these issues. But uh, as as you'd know that, you know, it's Aboriginal culture is not a well-taught curriculum within our schools. Rudd committed to it, but we still don't see it. Absolutely. And, and we often see that there is mention of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples throughout the curriculum without actually being embedded, without being more than sometimes a token level. And that and that's what school systems need to change. And I know that there are um, different groups coming into schools now to discuss how to actually have conversations with local Aboriginal leaders and, and actually connect in, you know, from outside community into school community and find a way to to actually learn about our past. And, and I guess that goes to that truth-telling idea that there is a past that is difficult to talk about and, and difficult for especially young people to to be exposed to. But at the same time, you know, when it comes to Anzac Day, we're able to talk about the, the bloody stories and bloody history that that goes along with that. So there is room to actually learn from, yeah, learn about the the land and and the 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 country that we are in and then actually move on from there and and you know celebrate a history and and celebrate a future that as you say has to be better it's an interesting it's an interesting point you make and it kind of goes back a little bit to you know both sides of my my family is um i've had uh, family aboriginal diggers that fought in world war 1 and world war 2 and you talk about, you know, values to fight for your country. Their ancestors had taken on them values to fight for their country uh, upon settlement. But then for them to go, okay, we want to fight alongside our Australian brothers and sisters in the world wars for a country that didn't recognise them as citizens, uh, that recognised them under a Flora and Fauna Act and they weren't even counted in the census, but they still took on those Australian values to, you know, protect what was built here and what was established in this country that wasn't what was foreign to them, which they didn't understand. It wasn't a way of life a generation ago. It was new. It's a bit like how we're all adapting to a new life now. And the comments that Annalise made via her Twitter, um, you know, I've, we've seen generations of my family go through that experience but still prepared to go to war and fight for the values of a colonial system that was new to them for a land and a cause that they believed in and that was to protect their fellow Australian and protect, you know, what was actually happening here. So my great-great-uncle is on the Yay uh, Memorial for serving, uh, I think, um, serving in World War II, and my um, great-great-grandfather was the biggest fundraiser in Yay at the time for um, for families of, um, of diggers who were overseas fighting the wars. Um, him and his wife, uh, who was uh, an English woman, or sorry, an Irish woman, uh, who I referred to earlier, uh, two brothers married two sisters. Yeah, they were the, he couldn't fight himself because of a health condition, but was the biggest fundraiser in the town. And was one of the first ever Aboriginal people to buy freehold land. I say buy back our land, but buy freehold land with the support of the Yay Shire at the time because of the contribution he made to the, com uh, the community, 
because of the um, the fundraising he done for those families who were were doing it tough while their um, their partners were overseas fighting world in World War Two. When it comes to Australia and protecting Australia and, and nurturing Australia, there's no one better than Aboriginal people, and they'll always, you know, stick up and fight for for what is sacred. And and the same goes to something really recent that's sort of been forgotten due to coronavirus, but the bushfires, the the oh, you know, the worst, one of the worst um natural disasters in terms of the uh, ferocity and, and and land that it actually destroyed the fires. And then the big discussion that went around Aboriginal cultural burning and that being another way to protect and to nurture land that as you and as has been stated you know land that was is not really well known by by Europeans it's it's well known by those that have looked after it for many thousands of years so do you see us being able to get to a point where we're able to actually harness the knowledge that is there anytime soon and I thought we were on the way and then coronavirus hit and it sort of put that on the, I was going to say back burner, which is a, a bad pun, but um, it put it, you know, on a back step there. Cultural burning, do you know much about it and, and where it fits in in Victoria and I guess in Tunnerung land as well? We've got some elders who, are, um, who carry the knowledge of, of fire and burning as part of our nation. I'm not um, one of them, but... Interestingly, uh, I used to be the CEO of a company called the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations, and we led a cultural burning strategy, uh, which people can find on their website, which is www.fvtoc.com.au, which is a really interesting read. And we worked with traditional owners with fire knowledge and a fire knowledge group from around Victoria to start pulling together, you know, how we can collectively build this practice and manage this practice from everyone's experience on their own countries. So we can actually start embedding this as a way of caring for country. So, you know, the continual damage to country that occurs through the Western way of trying to manage burning and whatnot uh, to, you know, significant success of that. And that was in partnership with DELP, I think it was early last year we sort of finalised that strategy document. So I'd encourage people to go have a look at it. And how long ago was that when it actually was um, brought about, initiated? Well, uh, do you mean cultural burning or the strategy? Yeah, the, 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 the cultural, the, the website, you know, what was on the website and, and the cultural burning there. Uh, we launched it last year with Minister D'Ambrosio and I think we launched it in May, so basically 12 months ago from memory. But I might be wrong. But but that's before that was before the the catastrophic fires hit, wasn't it? So this idea wasn't significantly. Yeah, before. it wasn't. We've something done a lot of work on this. This idea of actually knowing and having knowledge that this is going to happen. That there's potential without certain actions to take place. There is potential for the natural disaster that hit to actually occur. This this is something that could have been potentially stopped or or lessened. Uh, we've got um, a Tanarong elder that does um, cultural burning or cold burns on private landholders' um, uh, land to help them look after country you know, in preparation for fire season um, from what they were telling me, which is, which is amazing, but it's something that needs to be embedded as a, um, as a systemic practice across 
you know, the country led by traditional owners because it was been managed for thousands and thousands of years. The, the practice, you know, has sustained this nation and uh, there's a lot to gain and a lot to be learned. And um, like you alluded to, um, this strategy was delivered well before our bushfire season and we know we get bad bushfire seasons every year. Is this the type of thing that treaty can touch on? Is this the type of thing that a self-determination fund can actually be, you know, when you said it benefits everyone, is this something that could be put in place? Like one of the many examples that are there that actually lead to a more prosperous Victoria and Australia with, well, together instead of apart. Potentially, um, potentially. And I guess that's um, what will form part of the discussions throughout the treaty journey. Being six months in to date, um, I'm sure that this will form part of our discussions uh, within the treaty negotiation framework uh, and, and, you know, self-determination fund. Going back to those deadly questions and the controversies or or difficulties in asking certain things. So the, the first area to touch on is the idea of people that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, having access to, I guess, welfare or, or to benefits that people say, oh, the gap is there, but then these benefits are there and why is the gap continuing, you know, not to, to close as fast as it is if money's being thrown at it? This is something that I hear and I know that there's, it, it's not the case that there's just money being thrown at communities that are then squandering it. But that is something that I've heard often, and especially probably by people that remain ignorant on purpose to to this sort of this sort of thing. But what answer do you have to that? What is actually happening on the ground, and what brought this gap upon us? And then what is it now that is impeding this gap from being closed as as quickly as we'd like? Um, I think a big part of it is just still this. Um political divide of people thinking that um, Aboriginal people somehow get access to more benefits than than any other Australian, which for the life of me, I can't understand how that comes about or where that comes from. We still have Aboriginal people in this country living in, you know, remote communities and living in, um, you know, remote areas, living in third world conditions. We, I remember reading research and I mean, it might not be accurate from memory, the take-up of, you know, the average take-up of Medicare, I think, was like $390 for the average Australian. And I think on average, it, for an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, it was like um, 46 or $57, something like that, some odd number. And, you know, we look at our hospital and medical systems uh, and our institutions that have been built uh, throughout this country, what they represent to Aboriginal people, it's where you had your children removed forcibly removed for no reason. Um, So I think it goes back to this whole notion of storytelling through truth, through a truth telling process to understand what, you know, what represents us, that represents to a lot of Australians as a place where they save life being a hospital. That's something that represents an institution that is forcibly removed children from Aboriginal families and has torn Aboriginal families apart, you know, as recently as, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's um, it's just getting a clear understanding of what the systemic 
impact and what their ramifications are today and what's still happening and occurring throughout our communities. And that's why we see this journey of treaty being an opportunity. It's not the magic pill. It's not the magic fix. But it provides another layer of opportunity to consolidate and start improving the lives of you know, Aboriginal Victorians, traditional owners in Victoria, but also to change the narrative of our state moving forward and what you know we, as we spoke about earlier. My history is, but it's as much of your history living on Aboriginal land. For sure. And the idea of an acknowledgement of country, a lot of people say, what are words? A lot of people, you know, I often hear, like, why say this? What are the words? Are they, you know, are they as meaningful as they could be? Are they as meaningful when we acknowledge country or when we have someone welcome us on country? How meaningful is that to Aboriginal people in general? Words matter and words mean a lot. So they're significantly impactful. Our laws, our customs, we never travelled off country without permission and we'll never, we never went to someone else's country unless we're welcome. Uh, it was our way of um, safe passage and making sure we cared for country. So I've always been a big believer that there should always be welcome to countries. It's part of our law. It's part of our custom. Um, it should be a, a part of our practice as Victorians for any events and, and things that we do. It goes back to that point that words matter and words are important and acknowledging and respecting our culture as being part of your practice is, you know, the greatest level of respect you can show, you know, the history of this country. And Marcus, before before I let you go, and I'm so thankful for um, for you being here on, on late notice especially, what is it that is a moment of clarity for you? The podcast is named Moments of Clarity and through this conversation or through your, I guess, even recently with coronavirus or your recent involvement in in the different stages of your career, what is it that's been a moment of clarity for you that you'd like to share with us today? Great question. Save the best till last Um, or the most challenging, that is. I think, you know, we've all gone through enormous changes over the last couple of months, you know, through social distancing, through staying home, I think what treaty is offered for our communities is, or for our communities, is an element of hope. We've been able to think, we've been able to aspire to what this looks like generationally, what this looks like in 10 years, what this looks like in five years. So the moment of clarity that I've recently had that's really resonated with me is that all Australians right now have gone through a dramatic change to our lifestyle, to what we know as the social norm of, you know, how we interact and what we do within society on a daily basis. It's all changed. People are now experiencing what that change means and what change looks like. And I think what we're trying to create to change the cultural tapestry of this nation by a shared journey of reconciliation, a united Australia that understands its oldest living culture in the world, I think we've all experienced that change and the change we're wanting to create and achieve through treaty together. We know it's not that far apart now because people understand what change is and what change can look like. 
Now, it's been a forced change on us, but treaty isn't that. It's something that we can all subscribe to and move move along this journey together. So, Marcus, where can we find you if we want to follow you? And, and I guess on the eve of Reconciliation Week, what could and what should we be looking out for as, as we um, enter the end of May and start of June? Yeah, well, people can find me on um, on Twitter. I'm only on one form of social media, but uh, next week's a busy week. We've got a lot of talks lined up. But if people want to find out what I'm up to on Twitter, my handle's uh, Marcus B. Stewart or at Marcus B. Stewart. But also um, follow the First Peoples Assembly, which is at First Peoples Vic, uh, to see what's happening on the treaty journey on Twitter. Uh, they're also on Facebook as well. Uh, we'll have a busy week next week opportunities to talk about treaty and what it means within you know what it means within reconciliation week but um it's going to be an interesting one for us because um it's all going to be digital this time last year during uh reconciliation week you know we're doing a lot of media i remember doing john fain and uh, abc morning breakfast i don't think that'll be happening this year given uh, all the changes but um one thing we do know, it's uh, an important week for us as a people and as communities, and we hope that our fellow Australians and Victorians will, will get on board and, and celebrate with us, and but also um, get on board with the treaty journey that, um, that we're, we're on right now in Victoria. For sure. Thanks so much, Marcus, for sharing your journey and the attempts at you know, creating a better Australia for everyone um, through the work of treaty in Victoria and, and really for inspiring many people that are listening this to this, to, you know, follow their passions and have a voice and, and create meaningful change. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the conversation today, Please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.